what am I doing to ground my choices in data? Everything I do is based on emotion or like what I saw someone else doing at the gym. There was nothing objective. And at the same time, I'm in a very stressful part of my career and feeling burning, burnout coming on quickly. Like I was having these fatigue episodes. I would have very, very, like basically mood disorder. Like I would just be irritable. I would want to go home. I would want to crawl under my desk and sleep. All these things that were strange to me and couldn't be explained because I was in pretty good physical shape. I spoke to one of the, the doctors that was on the program with me and they recommended that I start tracking my blood sugar. So I got a finger prick device. I started pricking my finger obsessively and tracking it in, in an Excel spreadsheet. And it wasn't very useful to me. And then I read about CGM in, in Rob Wolf's book, actually, Wired to Eat. And that immediately changed things for me. So I went to my doctor. I asked for a CGM. I was promptly turned down and denied because I did not already have diabetes. And the argument was that you need to worry about tracking blood sugar if you have a blood sugar problem. But you do not. And so therefore, you don't need this. And as a systems engineer, my thought process was, well, actually, you, you track what you don't want to fail. You don't track it after it's failed. That's the way that you maintain systems. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. In this week's episode, I'm sharing another panel I hosted on behalf of CrossFit Health at this year's CrossFit Games. This particular panel was on the topic of wearables, and I was joined by a super intelligent group of self-experimenter experts. Kristen Holmes, who's the WHOOP VP of Performance Science, Josh Clement, who is the founder and president of Levels, a continuous glucose monitor company, Dr. Nick Nuebuezi, a physician with SteadyMD, Dr. Mike Mallon, one of the co-founders of CrossFit Precision Care, and Dr. Katina Thornton, an anesthesiologist. We talked about what the panelists have found to be the most useful metrics to track, why personalized data and experimentation are so crucial for improving health and performance, and some actionable tips that individuals can use to improve their biometrics. This panel was originally published on CrossFit.com on October 7th, but I'm excited to share it with you here. And stay tuned for upcoming panels on cancer, genomics, and pregnancy in the coming weeks as well. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. And with that, we'll get to the episode. We are going to be talking about the topic of wearables, which is very new and exciting especially in the CrossFit community and a lot of applications. So let me first introduce our panelists. First, next to me, we have Kristen Holmes, who's the Vice President of Performance Science at WHOOP. She works with top researchers and hundreds of tactical pro and collegiate athletes and teams to optimize training, recovery, and sleep. She has an impressive athletic resume of her own as well. She's a three-time All-American and two-time Big Ten Athlete of the Year at the University of Iowa competing in both field hockey and basketball, as well as a seven-year member of the U.S. national field hockey team. She holds a master's in psychology and sports performance from the University of the Rockies and is a PhD candidate in psychology at the University of Queensland. That was a mouthful. <laughs> All right, next we have Josh Clement, who is the founder and president of Levels, a continuous glucose monitor company that helps people take control of their metabolic fitness by using real-time data on their blood glucose levels. Prior to founding Levels, Josh led the development of pressurized life support systems at SpaceX and worked as a senior design engineer at Hyperloop. He's also a CrossFit Level 2 trainer and is passionate about fighting chronic disease through the use of data to provide personalized evidence-based insights. So thank you, Josh. All right, next we have Nick. You're going to have to help me again. Way, way Z. <laughs> All right. He's a board certified family medicine physician. He completed his medical school at the Ohio State University. I can't even believe I just said that as a University of Michigan grad at the Ohio State University College of Medicine and finished his internship and residency. Yeah, lots of big 10 up here um, at Adventist Hinsdale Hospital in Illinois. He's also a CrossFit level one trainer, and he believes medical school underprepares doctors to help people make significant life 
health improvements through their nutrition and other lifestyle changes. And he's passionate about learning more about how diet and movement affects overall health. So thanks, Nick, for being here. All right, then we have Mike Mallon. Dr. Mike Mallon is the chief medical officer and co-founder of Wild Health. He attended the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, completed his residency at the University of Utah, and now practices in Bend, Oregon. He is a board-certified emergency medicine physician and completed his fellowship in point-of-care ultrasound. He's the co-author of two textbooks and taught thousands of other physicians through online education. And his current obsession is the science of longevity, helping people live as long as they can with the highest quality of life obtainable. So thank you, Mike. And finally, we have Dr. Katina Thornton, who is a board-certified anesthesiologist. She completed her medical education at UT Southwestern Medical School. And following a transitional internship at Methodist Medical Center in Dallas, she completed an additional training at the John A. Burns School of Medicine in Honolulu. She attended a year of law school also at the University of Hawaii before returning to Dallas to complete her residency in anesthesiology and pain management at UT Southwestern. And Dr. Thornton is also a level two trainer, CrossFit level two trainer, and believes that a healthy lifestyle and diet are critical for long-term health and for building our best hedge against many chronic diseases. So thank you, Katina. (laughs) All right. So lots of interesting people up here with great diverse backgrounds, and we're going to talk about wearables today. So let's just start off with how did each of you start down this path of wearable tracking and what about it got you hooked? Whoever wants to start. (laughs) I'll start. I'll start because um, my journey with wearables started with a meeting with Josh. Um, I was at a CrossFit physician's meeting and Josh was there. And so I started wearing them and found out so much about how what I eat, sleep, uh, drink affects my blood glucose and then how I feel in turn. And so chance meetings can sometimes change your life. Wow, that is powerful. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'll go next. Um, I was uh, coaching at the uh, at Princeton University uh, for about 13 years. And um, one of the things that I found early on, um, we were monitoring uh, a ton of um, biomarkers during training. But what was always what always perplexed me is that the, the load that my athletes were putting on in training didn't predict next day capacity. So we were using other te- technology to, um, to measure capacity. So there's this disconnect between training load and next day capacity. So I, I learned very quickly that it's the other 20, 21, 22 hours that they're not with me that has the most influence on capacity. And that's when I started going really deep down the, the rabbit hole of, you know, what can we measure, um, you know, in a 24-7 type of way. And that's when I um, came across Whoop and was really, you know, they were just so far ahead in terms of data collection, so far ahead in their algorithms. They had hardware. Um, so that's when I, I became enamored and, and decided to join forces about five years ago. But, um, yeah. So... Um... That's, I'm louder than I thought I was. Uh, so I think for me, um, things started with CrossFit. Uh, you know, like most people in CrossFit, we like logging information and looking back over time and tracking data historically. Um, so seven or eight years into, into um, CrossFit training, about 2017, 18, I was in residency and I heard about this device, you know, the Whoop and um, kind of uh, the data uh, that it would, it would reveal to you about yourself. And obviously at this time is, all of us who have been through residency on this panel know you're, you're sleep deprived a lot of time. You don't, you're not going to be um, at peak performance. Being able to quantify things and actually be able to see, okay, I'm in the red, which in residency happened to be a good amount of the time. Um, I'm in the red today. You know, I can't expect the best out of my body. I can't expect peak performance was something that um, kind of helped to calm down anxiety or disappointment rather when I wouldn't perform as well as I thought I should be able to in the gym. Um, cause I've always been hard on myself. Even if I have, you know, I'm coming off of a, uh, post-call, uh, shift at the hospital and I'm only running off a three hours sleep in my mind, I should still be able to deadlift 500 pounds. Why can't I pick up this bar? Right? So looking at the whoop and seeing that I'm in the red, it kind of, it, um, it gave me permission to be a little more, a little more, uh, relax with myself. So, um, yeah, since then I've used a bunch of wearables and a lot of technology. Anyone who knows me knows I'm 
very nerdy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Whoop was what started everything for me. I'll take it way back. Um, I started wearing wearables when uh, heart rate chest straps. Does anybody remember those, right? Oh, yeah. So I uh, used to wear those at CrossFit, which got me a lot of weird looks for a while. And um, my buddies and I used to have competitions to see who could get their heart rate the highest and keep it as high as possible for as long as possible. Not recommended. Um, and, uh, and then at some point, I found out about Whoop. I think it was actually Whoop 1.0 that I started wearing and realized that I could start actually tracking recovery. And that's when that transition from performance to recovery is when it really hit for me and it really clicked, realizing that we can, we can actually track that recovery and that is then going to lead to performance down the road as opposed to actually tracking just performance. Yeah, so for me, it, it started at SpaceX. So I, I've kind of been interested in human performance from a selfish perspective for a long time. I just wanted to be able to run fast and lift heavy things. But I had never thought deeply about nutrition and kind of the holistic side of wellness. And when I was at SpaceX, I was developing a life support system that um, required me to kind of get exposure to the way NASA is thinking about maintaining health over long durations when you don't have access to medical care. And it really started me thinking on what, what am I doing to ground my choices in data? Everything I do is based on emotion or like what I saw someone else doing at the gym. There was nothing objective. And uh, at the same time, I'm in a very stressful part of my career and feeling burning, burnout coming on quickly. Like I was having these fatigue episodes. I would have very, very, like basically mood disorder. Like I would just be irritable. I would want to go home. I would want to crawl under my desk and sleep. All these things that were strange to me and couldn't be explained because I was in pretty good physical shape. Um, I spoke to one of the, the doctors that was on the program with me and they recommended that I start tracking my blood sugar. So I got a finger prick device. I started pricking my finger obsessively and tracking it in, in an Excel spreadsheet. And it wasn't very useful to me. And then I read about CGM in, in Rob Wolf's book, actually, Wired to Eat. And that immediately changed things for me. So I went to my doctor, I asked for a CGM. I was promptly turned down and denied because I did not already have diabetes. And the argument was that you need to worry about tracking blood sugar if you have a blood sugar problem, but you do not. And so therefore you don't need this. And as a systems engineer, my thought process was, well, actually, you, you track what you don't want to fail. You don't track it after it's failed. That's the way that you maintain systems. And so uh, I'm having energy system issues. Metabolism is the energy system. And so glucose is the primary fuel. I should track this. So eventually, I did get a CGM, and I found out that I was pre-diabetic. And that's when everything changed. So I, I completely transformed my lifestyle, nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress, everything changed from one data stream. And so I, I wanted to build levels to be that, the whole process in one. So the actionability of the data, but also the accessibility of the devices. And, and so that's what we're hoping to do is bring this to more people to, to make the technology, I think, um, what it can be eventually. That's amazing. Two, just two points I want to highlight. One, I think it's amazing that you found you were pre-diabetic when you were you know, fit and in shape. Um, and how it really highlights how all these other factors do play a role besides just the exercise we're doing. Like you said, it's the sleep, it's the stress, it's all those other things, the 23 hours outside the gym. Um, and then to Nick's point about CrossFit has always been very much about tracking objective data, performance data. And so now incorporating some other data points to inform those other aspects outside the gym. So there's obviously a lot of things that we can track. You guys have mentioned blood glucose, the WHOOP. Um, I'd love to just dig into what, what are all the different metrics that you all have played around with and tracked and what do you find most useful that you, you use currently on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I think heart rate variability is, is a core metric to WHOOP and I think one of the most important biomarkers that, um, that we can track because I think it, it gives you a sense of not just physically how you're adapting to external uh, load and this is life load, not just, you know, um, not just physiological load, but psychological load as well. It's a really powerful, powerful estimator of your psychological status. And a lot of folks don't actually realize that. Um, but that will manifest in your autonomic nervous system, which HRV is a measure of. So it just gives you, I think, just an, a really good snapshot of how you're adapting to life stress. And I think the opportunity with that is, is it, it, when you have insight into that and things aren't going well, you can course correct, you know, as opposed to gosh, six months down the road, you're still feeling like crap. You know, a few days of, of a downward trending HRV is an indication that 
all right, I need to relook at my behaviors potentially. I need to rethink about the volume and intensity that I'm putting on my, on my body, not just physically, but psychologically as well. So it just gives you a really good snapshot of just how you're trending and how you're adapting to external stress. I'll definitely agree with the HRV. I think that one's huge. Um, I also use uh, resting heart rate in, in conjunction with HRV in terms of overall stress response and recovery. I will take a slightly different lean on HRV though, and that's towards the constant measuring of it. I don't know if you guys have heard of the LEAF device. Uh, there's a couple others out there, but it basically measures your HRV continuously. It's like a device that goes on your chest, measures your HRV, and it zaps you, vibrates, whenever, uh, whenever your HRV drops. And it takes you through a, a, a series of breaths to bring your HRV back up. And when you wear this device, it becomes really apparent very quickly how, how much we go up and down with the stress response throughout the day. Personally, I noticed whenever I sat, started to do email, I would have what's called email apnea, where I basically sit there and I'm starting, I'm typing an email. I don't breathe as I'm typing the email. And then after I hit send, I let out a big sigh. And when that happens, you're creating stress within your body. You're activating the sympathetic nervous system. You mentioned the sympathetic autonomic nervous system. HRV is a measure of the balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic being cortisol, stress, parasympathetic being relaxation, less stress, right? So what, when, what you're doing by measuring your HRV constantly like that is you're sort of teaching yourself to realize when you're allowing stress to get the better of you. And by going through these little breathing exercises throughout the day, you can start to activate the parasympathetic nervous system during times of the day when you wouldn't nervous, normally do it and improve your overall recovery over time. So for me, that was, that was a huge one that I think everybody should try out. No, no affiliation. So I can remark on uh, two. I would definitely agree with you with HRV and then you with resting heart rate. I think resting heart rate is huge for telling you. Um, I've noticed a correlation with that and just how well I slept, right? Um, so I'm from Denver where we're, we live a mile high. And because of that, uh, I've noticed just in the couple of days that I'm here that my resting heart rate is now in the mid 40s, low 40s, right? And it's almost like my body's like, oh, you don't have to work as hard to supply your body with oxygen. So um, looking at that, trending that over time is very important. I think one thing that she didn't remark on with a whoop that is very important in this post-COVID time is that you could essentially use it to essentially kind of figure out when you may be coming down with an infection. I did have COVID early last year, and I knew it before it happened because my respiratory rate was very high before, uh, before I, I was diagnosed with it. So, um, and then as things got better, my respiratory rate trended down towards normal. Um, outside of WHOOP, I would say with levels and kind of continuous glucose uh, monitoring, you're able to see um, the correlation between the foods that you eat, which unbeknownst to you may not be as healthy as you think that they are. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna name any names of any products. I don't want to slander anybody, but there are a lot of products that are marketed that you eat them and you look at your your blood sugar and you there can be a good amount of glycemic variability secondary to eating a protein bar that you're like, oh, this is healthy. Um, okay, no, I'm gonna absolutely slander one brand here, Gatorade. So Gatorade makes these delicious protein bars that taste like Snickers. And they're like, oh, high protein, 30 something grams. I would encourage you to eat that and track what happens with levels with your, with your sugar. You will notice a very big spike. And that's because along with that protein is a healthy dose of high glycemic um, index uh, sugar, usually high fructose corn syrup. And um, it's kind of, you know, you're not really going to be able to have that revelation unless you can monitor your glucose in real time. And um, with levels, one thing that I very much like is the software. The software is essentially able to assign um, glucose variability that is, uh, that is due to one food to whatever you ate, as opposed to like, you know, you could eat a couple different things and it'll still be able to tell you, okay, your blood sugar rose because of this specific thing. And we'll, it will actually assign scores to your food. So um, yeah, that's whoop and that's levels. And yeah, hopefully that's a good answer. So I'm going to echo what you all have said, but take it one step further. And the one thing that I love about the CrossFit community is that people are interested in their health and they enjoy tracking. And what I found is that I can take the data that I found on myself and extrapolate it to 
members of our community. And so, for example, at this competition, I've been at the medical table and we've had athletes come in for various reasons, whether it's they think they're getting sick or they're exhausted from a workout. And so many of them are wearing a CGM or have a whoop on their wrist. And I can take their cell phone and look at their data and have a feel for what is going on with these uh, athletes or spectators or volunteers. And so by myself having track data and seeing what happened when I was under stress or I didn't have enough sleep or I wasn't eating right or I was getting sick, I can use that and help make a decision about how we're going to treat these people moving forward. And so what's wonderful is that as we have the community use these devices and learn about themselves, they'll be able to preempt these issues on their own. But until they do, I think that we've all found that we can help them with the knowledge that we've gained from biohacking ourselves. Just to like echo on that real quick, because that was a great, great point that you made. I think all of us assign a certain amount of recovery needed to each workout, right? Like if you go and, and you do like a, a really hard long session, a long hard chipper and you go all out, you're going to assign a great deal of recovery to that. But I think what we forget to do a lot of the time is to assign recovery to other aspects of our life. Like maybe your job's a little bit busier or you've got stuff going on at home or you've been traveling so you haven't been sleeping as much. The objective data that we're collecting with these devices allows us to actually start to do that a little bit and to realize that like recovery comes from more than or is required for more than just one place. It's not just exercise that needs to recover. It's also stress. It's also lack of sleep. It's also poor diet, nutrition, all of those things. And that's what these, these devices are allowing us to start to do is pull all of that information in together. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, the, it, it's, it's kind of going to continue the trend here, but cardiovascular hire all these people. <laughs> right? <laughs> cardiovascular health and uh, I think metabolic health. And, and I consider metabolic fitness and the way that I'm generating energy to be core and the foundation under which physical health and mental health are built. All the tissues in our bodies need to be able to generate energy efficiently to operate efficiently. So if you can't do that, you can't be peak physical fit peak mental fit. And so I start there. I start with what am I putting in my body and why and having objective data that drives those decisions and is contextual. Like the most important thing is that, you, you know, we look at the glycemic index and it's an average of averages normalized to 100. How do you know what to eat for lunch after you've had a red eye flight? Because it's going to be different than what to have for lunch uh, when you're well rested and have been training for, for multiple weeks effectively. And so it's that context dependency that I think is most important and anything that you can use, uh, for me it's CGM, heart rate and heart rate variability through WHOOP, uh, to, to keep you in the know with continuous closed feedback loops, I think is, that's, that's what it's all about. Do you want to touch on how response is different between different people for the same foods? I think a lot of people aren't aware of that. Yeah, sure. I, I, one of the most interesting studies that really confirmed my, my goals with the company when, when starting it was... I read about this Weizmann Institute trial. It, it was in 2015 in Israel, and they took 800 people without diabetes um, and put CGMs on them and then tracked what happened over the course of seven days. And they gave out these standard meals, so everyone ate the same foods, and then they were able to later look at that data set. And they showed that two people in this data set could eat the exact same two foods. In this case, it was a cookie made with wheat flour and a banana, and they could have equal and opposite blood sugar responses. So a big spike from the banana flat from the cookie for one person and the exact opposite for the other. And the implication there is that the hormones that respond to the foods that we're eating, the, the macronutrients that are breaking down into our blood, could also be equal and opposite. So one person's experiencing a big influx of, of insulin, which could be causing uh, anything from inflammation to weight gain to cognitive uh, you know, cloudiness. These are all the sorts of qualitative experiences and to each their own in terms of what they're focused on. But if this is truly happening, the, the hormones downstream could be totally opposite for two of us. Um, that's, that's where the personalization element comes in. And there's been follow-on studies that have demonstrated the same effect. So, and, and I can just say for a fact, we have a very large data set now and it, it is showing the exact same thing. There's a massive disparity among people in, in terms of what they eat and how it affects them. I feel like we need a hater. I'm just going to start. I'm going to hate on wearables for the rest of the panel. <laughs> we need a hater. Sorry. Can I add a point to Mike? Because um, I, I think people are really interested in protocols and, and what behaviors they can deploy. And you mentioned real-time heart rate variability. 
Um, that is something that we track. We don't surface it to users because it's really noisy. Um, but we, one of my responsibilities at Whoop is, is basically to ensure that all the claims that we're making are grounded in super rigorous science. Um, and that drives uh, a lot of the research that we do at Whoop. Um, and one of the things that we just finished some research with Stanford University, the principal investigator was Dr. Andrew Huberman, you probably know, um, but we were able to actually, um, this is super novel research. Um, you guys are kind of the first people to hear it, but we were able to come up, we were able to see in the data um, what uh, breathing protocol actually um, activates the parasympathetic branch the most um, and actually has the most influence on sleep architecture. And what we found is that the physiological sigh, which is a double inhale, long exhale, um, is the most efficacious in um, reducing real, like, um, in the moment stress. So, um, as you know, Mike pointed out, you know, as you go through the day, you don't want to be in a situation where, you know, you're not taking these many moments of rest because it does accumulate. It is going to influence your sleep onset latency. It is, is going to influence the time you're spending in these deeper stages of sleep, and it will influence your capacity to recovery and recover next day. So it's so powerful to build in these physiological size, five to 10 cycles, three or four times a day will have an enormous impact on, you know, kind of mitigating these low levels of chronic stress. I love that. Kristen, I think you should lead us all in a, in a no. breathing. <laughs> okay. All through the nose if you can, nasal breathing folks. It's breathe, not breathe through the mouth. All right. So CrossFit has also always been really big on using our performance data to drive these N of one experiments and doing really individualized um, experiments so that we know what is going to improve our training. So whether it's changing something about your training or recovery and tracking your workouts and trying to always see improvement, but now we have all these other data points that we can use. And so I'm interested to hear for all of you, if you could each maybe touch on one end of one experiment that you've tried on yourself that maybe was the most surprising or that you learned the most from. <laughs> Mike? <laughs> start or you start? I don't know. Uh, um, blood sugar for me. So uh, the first time I got a CGM, I put it on, and over the course of about a week, I ate the exact same thing at the exact same time of day and just altered slight things about what I ate. So it was a banana, and with that banana, the first day it was just a banana by itself, and then the next day was a banana with some eggs, and the next day was a banana with some broccoli, and then the next day was a walk followed by a banana, and then the following day was a banana followed by a walk. And it blew my mind, like how different that glucose response is with just that little augmentation of either adding a little protein, adding a little fat, adding some fiber or movement around actually taking, ingesting that food. And it actually changed the way that I eat still. I mean, I used, I grew up eating oatmeal, ate oatmeal my entire life basically until about two years ago when I wore a CGM and I realized that my blood sugar was spiking to like 175 when I ate oatmeal. Didn't matter if it had like protein or or almond butter or whatever in it. It was terrible. It was a bad response. So putting in oatmeal. And I've changed like multiple other aspects of my diet. I feel like CGM is one of those things. And I tell my patients this all the time. They ask me, doc, should I get a CGM? And my answer is always yes. I don't think I've ever said no to anyone because even if you are so in tune with your body, even if you're a professional athlete and you're, or you're, you're even a nutritionist, you don't know how you're going to respond to food until you know. So actually seeing that data real and live over the course of a couple of weeks can completely change the way that you approach food. Sounds familiar. You did the exact same experiment with a banana? <laughs> Basically. I don't think I was as rigorous. I changed you know, the, the, the protein and fat, the walk. Uh, and, and walk order. Those were the two things that I did. And, and that's basically the, what I run through with every food that I now eat is I've, I've run a couple different variations to see what has the most effect for a certain food. And I compare them uh, directly to each other. And then that's how I eat that food going forward. And it sounds like a lot of cognitive overhead, but actually it, it, it's really easy. You don't forget these things. And you all, if you're tracking it, you, you've got it to refer back to. And it's, um, it's, you know, it's funny you bring up oatmeal as well, because in our data set, the number one offender for postprandial, postmeal elevations is oatmeal. And a lot of people who, you know, cardiovascular disease is very closely related, as you all know, to uh, inflammation, which is also well correlated with blood sugar variability. And so people who are trying to avoid heart disease or potentially are even already have cardiovascular disease are oftentimes referred to the heart healthy oatmeal as a morning breakfast option. And if you Google the healthiest options for breakfast, oatmeal's up there on all of them, no matter where you find it. And it turns out that a lot of these people likely are doing damage as opposed to uh, serving their own goals. So 
I'm going to relate my uh, N of 1 experiment to the CGM. And when I was pregnant with one of my children, this was before I ever wore a CGM, I went in for my fasting glucose. And it was high, high enough that they wanted to do further testing. And I said, no, no, there must be some mistake. I exercise all the time. And I've read that it can increase your blood sugar. No, 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 no. We have to do the test. So we did, and it was normal. And I never really thought much about it again until I had a CGM and I was wearing it. And because of my work, I, I don't eat during the day. So I wake up and I'm fasted until I get home from work. Uh, or I go to the gym. And so I had the CGM on, and I would go from work to the gym and do whatever the workout of the day was. And I constantly had my phone checking my blood sugar. I wanted to see what it did, not really understanding that I could see the trend five hours later, six hours later. Every intense workout, think Fran, my blood sugar would spike to 150, sometimes 200, and I thought back and I realized that I went and had my fasting glucose after I had worked out. And so it made sense to me after seeing the data that my blood sugar would be elevated. The other thing that I realized is maybe there's no need for carb loading before you work out when your body is able to produce that response all on its own. And so it sort of turned on its head all of the thoughts that I had about how you should eat to train. Um, and then combining that with the WHOOP and looking at recovery and the heart rate variability, I realized that there's a lot of interplay physiologically between your blood sugar and your heart rate. I'm thinking that you need to tell okay. them how heart rate variability declines with age. Oh, and, yeah. And your number is so far out the roof. Yeah. You know, I'm in my forties. Um, so yeah, to have, um, I think metrics, which, you know, relative to my age group, you know, I'm in the very top, Oh, you know, 0.001% of, of that group. And, and a lot of it is obviously I'm dialed in on a ton of stuff. I measure my, my glucose and, um, you know, I'm really cognizant of the type of exercise that I, I deploy. Um, you know, I'm a scientist. So I'm thinking about these things pretty intently. I do, you know, uh, yeah, there's a taxonomy of breathing protocols. I do the ones that are most efficacious. Um, so I'm really, you know, about applying my efforts. I'm, I'm really specific, but, um, so there's a lot of factors, but I think the evidence at this point is, you know, indisputable that sleep wake timing is probably is the, the core behavior that really does translate to, um, you know, preventing aging, frankly, like, I, I just think you, you literally delay your clock if you stabilize your sleep wake timing. Can you just talk about how you do that from a practical standpoint? Like, yeah, I have no social life. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I just set boundaries, you know, with the people I love. I, I know that I can't show up and be available and be engaged and present in the way that I want to um, if I, I don't adhere to this behavior. So I just, I go early, like I'm with the senior citizens, you know, at five o'clock for dinner. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I just, and, and I just, you know, I tell my friends, like, this is how I roll and I mean, everyone's cool with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I start my pre-bed routine at like eight 45. Um, I'm asleep by nine 45. I do reading gratitude journal. Um, and that time has become really sacred for me. And, um, you know, I just, I just feel, you know, way more stable than I've ever felt my entire life, way more productive. I mean, I feel like I can take on a ton over the course of the day. Um, and I think I really attribute it to this sleep wake timing. So, and you're setting an alarm to wake up. Every um, I wake up naturally, so I don't even need to set an alarm. Um, I wake up, you know, basically five forty-five on the dot every single day. Yeah. What you just said, the, the journaling, the gratitude yep. journal, the reading, the time yep. before bed, getting in bed, having a routine before bed is yeah. 100% the most important thing that I've seen in my patients in terms of yeah. improving sleep. Yeah, it's no and question. Cold dark quiet is obviously really yep. important to your environment, but yeah. I've noticed patients, so just not just mindfulness, meditation, all forms of mindfulness help people raise both their recovery, their HRV, decrease their resting heart rate. Um, going back to Julie's question from earlier, my, my N of one experiment, I went just insane. So um, there is a Panoe metabolic uh, device. Many of you have probably seen this. So I strapped myself onto one of those. I found an assault bike at the gym. And over the next 17 minutes, I subjected myself to torture. 
Um, but it was really cool. At the end of it, I basically was presented with uh, graphical data, um, essentially telling me that what I had been doing for the last three years wasn't, wasn't that it was ineffective, it was that it was suboptimal. And what I had been doing was I was very low carb at all times. Um, I will never knock anything low carb. It works for a lot of people. But I think that when you're trying to output 100% at the gym and you have these certain demands of yourself um, that eating around your, your exercise is more ideal. So essentially, the Panoe demonstrated to me that at an average heart rate that I found from my whoop that I tend to maintain during workouts, which my average heart rate will usually be at about 170. According to the Panoe, I'm burning 20 calories per minute at that heart rate. And furthermore, given what's called the RER, the respiratory exchange ratio, I am burning no fat at that moment. It is all carbs in the event of because I'm low carb uh, at that moment. Um, so there are things in the human body called gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. And essentially, even when you're low carb, your body can still produce sugar. My issue with that and using it for peak performance in CrossFit is that it lags. It is not, at least in my opinion, it's not quick enough to uh, give you the energy that you need. So long story short, given that data that I got from the Panoe, I then turned around and used this man's device, the levels, to determine, okay, if I make a, a, a shake with berries and a little bit of honey and blah, 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 how long will it take to get my blood sugar at a level that I can go hit a workout and I will know that I have sugar available for my muscles. And that time was about 40 to 50 minutes. So as you can imagine, what I started doing was immediately 40 to 50 minutes before the workout, I would make a um, relatively, not super high carb, maybe 50 to 60 grams of carbohydrates, uh, protein shake. And I would drink that and I would go hit a workout and I cannot tell you the difference in how I felt. I felt so much better during workouts. I felt like I could just keep doing work and I could keep breathing. And it all went back to number one, being able to see the shake that I made, exactly what the glycemic trend would be, what the, what the response would be with my body. And then obviously before that, using the metabolic device to determine that, you know, during very high heart rates of CrossFit, I am not burning fat. Um, and this isn't, this isn't just with CrossFit. Actually, any high-intensity interval training exercise burns primarily carbohydrates. Um, afterward, after the workout, hours after, yes, you do then default into more fat burning. But during CrossFit, you're burning carbs. So, um, you know, using a combination of devices, I basically figured out exactly how many carbs I need so I don't need to overeat and I certainly don't need to undereat. We do have a partnership with Panoe. So if you have that cardiometabolic data, you can send it to our membership services and they can calibrate your data based on, I know, I know, I know, I know. So anyone who does Panoe, like you can get your, um, your, your BMR kind of, um, set and like, and, and it would be more accurate. Wow. This is, I'm learning so much. This is so great. All right. Let's take some questions from the audience. We've got about 10 more minutes. All right, Noah's coming with the microphone. Hi, is this on? Yeah. Uh, Spencer with Barben, thank you all so much. This was enormously helpful, but I think it was a bit, uh, a little esoteric and a little bit inaccessible, you know, especially for people without a certain level of affluence. So in terms of actionability, are there things you would recommend for people who, you know, aren't able to biohack, you know, to the degree that you all are? <laughs> Such a good question. I, I'm just going to throw out there that one of the most impressive effects that I've seen that anyone can replicate today is light movement after meals. So if there's one thing I would say start today, it's after you finish dinner, put the dishes in the sink and go for a walk around the neighborhood. And it's dramatically uh, different, but consistent across the population, how much this can improve the glycemic response of that meal. And it's just your posterior chain, big muscles, pulling glucose right out of your blood as you're moving. And uh, it's something that holds for everyone, simple, and it's great. It's good for your mind, it's good for your body, and it's easy to do. And to add to Josh, uh, in addition to doing that, we were all told as children by our parents, don't eat your dessert first, right? Eat the main meal, right? With levels, you're able, and even if you don't have levels, I'm telling you, that you're able to see that your parents were 
100% right. Eating your protein, eating your fiber before eating your, your, I don't know, chocolate chip skillet or ice cream is a lot better when it comes to the glycemic response. You, it essentially will blunt the response afterward. Very much so walking, uh, walking will do essentially the same. Um, but, uh, yeah, those are, those are two, two things anyone should be able to do. Something else that I think should be added is that no matter what it is that you're eating, if it's a whole food rather than a processed food, it's going to be better 100% of the time. So when you're making your food choices, if you're opening a package, it's not going to be as good as if you're eating a salad or a vegetable or a whole fruit. And so that's probably the easiest thing to do. You don't really have to think much about other than the source of what you're eating, where it's coming from and who made it, Mother Nature or a company. I think, yes, you're loud, you are loud. I think uh, it can be as simple as what, what gets measured gets managed. So if you want to actually manage your sleep, if you want to manage your, your glucose response to food and your metabolic intake, then measure it. And I don't think it has to be any more esoteric or complicated than that. I think literally just putting that device on your body and every once in a while pulling your phone out and looking to see what it's telling you, you're going to learn 80% to 90% of what we just told you up here within a matter of weeks. And that's the cool part is that it's really that easy. I think for folks who can't afford devices, um, probably the, the, the best thing that you can do is breathe through your nose. And, and I, and I think we, you know, we should be teaching this to children, you know, as soon as they come out, you know, as soon as they come out of the womb, like, uh, you know, it, it's, I think we see, um, there's a, a, quite a strong correlation between, um, you know, if you're sleeping with your mouth open, if you're breathing with your mouth open primarily, you know, during the day, really it's your mouth is for talking and eating and, and that's it. I'm sorry. I just went down a really dark path there. Um, <laughs> but, um, it's for eating and talking. Um, and so we should prioritize breathing through our nose and, and that is free. So there needs to be just way more education at lower level, uh, you know, in school to make sure that, you know, children are becoming aware of this and mindful. They should be practicing it in the same way they practice math and English and science. Like, um, so I, I think, and there's a lot of really good resources, you know, we need to evangelize, spread the word. And I would just add that there are more low tech ways to measure too. So even if you're not, you know, purchasing a whoop or a levels device, Maybe you just have, like Josh, start out finger stick and prick your glucose. Um, maybe you just measure more subjectively. How do I feel before and after I eat and rate it on a, a number scale and keep an Excel spreadsheet like many of you probably did when you started tracking? There are different ways to measure that are um, less expensive and accessible. Or even just checking your resting heart rate in bed in the morning before you roll out. You know, There are so many simple things we could do. The bolt test for recovery um, is really good too. Just look it up. Grip strength is also another proxy for recovery. Um, the Canadians love the grip, you know. That's a whole bunch of Canadian research on grip strength and its correlation to performance and recovery. So you can look that up. Love it. All right, let's take another question from the audience. No, over here. Okay. I have a Whoa. I have a question about HRV. So I track my HRV, sleeping HRV, but I don't actually know what I'm looking for. Like I know very fit people that are my age who have HRVs in 200s and mine's like 140. And then I have someone else who has one in the 60s. Like is the baseline more important in tracking change or are we all striving for a certain goal? Yeah, I think it across the board for any tracking, it's it's all N of one. And I think this is the beauty of wearables generally is that they're allowing us to create population scale N of one experiments, which all stack up to, you know, changes across society, but the individual should focus on their patterns and trends. Uh, comparing absolute numbers baseline to baseline is not really helpful uh, for you. You can't, you can't magically change it, but you can see what is within your control to improve. And obviously I don't know enough about HRV, but I, I do see this across the, the board that, you know, people tend to compare on the things that, um, on the absolute values and get too fixed on them. And we need to, you know, anyone in wearables, in the wearable industry and, and you know, bringing this stuff out should, should help others recognize that it's the patterns and trends that you can influence. 
It might be similar to asking somebody what their weight is. And if they weigh less than you, then you get worried. And if they weigh more than you, then you're like, oh, well. Um, it's a similar situation because everybody is so different. One more question? We have a, yeah. Hi. Um, so going off of her question, offhand, are there specific, I guess, conditions that would affect having a much lower baseline in HRV? So like reference, the highest I've ever gotten mine is maybe like 46, 50. Um, but that's my, like, it's always been my norm to have that, like, 20 to 45 range. So, wondering if there's other, because I have a couple of medical conditions and I don't know, like, what affects that. Medication is, I think, important to, that can artificially change, you know, um, your heart rate variability. So, I, you know, Mike, this, you probably talked to, you know, from this from a medical perspective or, or Nick or, or, you know, Katrina. But um, there's lots of things that can artificially change it that, um, you know, do, uh, that would uh, make your baseline be like not as, uh, accurate. Um, uh, so thyroid issues could definitely do it. Um, you know, I think that HRV, um, is one of those things that, uh, at least when it comes to the large consortium of medical diagnoses, like it's not like in med school we're taught, you know, this condition is going to affect your heart rate variability. Um, now, what I is mean, heart rate variability? Did you learn that in med school? I uh, know, right? Yeah, I don't think I heard it once in med school. So, you know, that, that speaks to something Julie's implying and I'm implying too. A lot of this is self-taught, right? Um, I remember, it must have been a year ago, Whoop actually uh, sent out an email saying everything there is to know about HRV. And that's where I found uh, the age correlation with HRV um, and... Uh, uh, essentially stopped comparing my HRV to other people's, right? And just kind of figured out my baseline. Um, so I think that, you know, as long as you know your baseline uh, and, and you know, you're trying to st stay towards the upper end of that, um, I, I, think, I think things are fine. I don't think it's important to try and fixate on raising it uh, further um, beyond the things that we've already talked about, right? Uh, making sure that your resting heart rate is as low as you can have it. Your recovery score is good. You know, you try to activate your parasympathetic uh, tone, your parasympathetic nervous system as much as possible as opposed to your sympathetic. Those are the things that I would fixate on as opposed to like the minutia of trying to get your HRV as high as possible, you know? So. And, and just to say it out loud, 40 is not weird. Like that's <laughs> totally cool. Yeah. You're doing great. <laughs> Now I wonder what Dr. Mellon's is. <laughs> What's yours? Um, it, it started out at 40, and I was really worried about it, and now it, it's at 80. And it took, it took about eight months of mindful attention to get it there, and I'm hoping to continue to get it higher. I will, I will say one thing. Mine actually depends on which device I'm wearing. So it's way different on Whoop than it is on Aura. So that's another thing to think about as well, is you're actually going to get, I, I get a much higher number on Whoop than I do on Aura. Yeah, it's because we filter ectopic beats. Yep. And just as you, for, yeah, and just so you Aura know. just averages out throughout the entire night. So as far as more, ours is more accurate. And, do you have a lot it, of that? Doesn't, doesn't Whoop measure it within the last five minutes? Of, Hoping to get that in. Of short wave. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> just kidding. All right, um, let's take one more question and then we'll wrap this up. Hey, my name is Kelsey. Um, I had a quick question about wearing uh, wearable devices with night shift work. So most ones that I've been acquainted were with, I don't, not super familiar with CGM, but they reset during the night. And I do think for myself and a lot of people in the same category, wearable devices would be very beneficial in trying to just hold on on what little health we can while being dysregulated. So I didn't know if you guys had any advice on what to utilize or if there are resources out there. I'll take this one because I've, work night shifts or I used to, I work, used to work in the emergency room and I'd work, I'd work overnight shifts. And one of the most frustrating things for me would be I would work a night shift and then I'd go home and I'd sleep for a solid six or seven hours. And then I'd wake up and like my aura ring or my whoop didn't quite pick it up and I get dinged and now my recovery score sucks. And it takes me three days to like work it back up. It used to drive me insane. And I, I don't have a solution, but I feel your pain. And I just wanted to say, thank you for saying that. Somebody needs to scream that over in this direction over here. So that we get, <laughs> yeah, I, maybe you actually, guys are working on it. But. No, we, we have, well, yeah, that's kind of a, 
another issue. You can always edit your sleep. We go back in and we'll look at it. So that's a way to think about it. But I think in terms of behaviorally things that you can do, we're actually doing research with U.S. Army. Um, you know, one of the most uh, important influencers on our circadian rhythm is obviously how we're interacting with light, artificial light and natural light. Um, and that actually is emerging in the study and of a thousand uh, with U.S. Army Alaska as one of the predictors of resilience. So we understand at a fundamental level that um, you know, uh, you know, our circadian rhythm obviously is really important. And you, you know, as a night shift worker, you're experiencing, you know, massive amounts of desynchronization in that, in that area. So if you think about it from a perspective of what are the anchors, right, that you can grasp onto that help regulate the system in spite of not being able to be awake during the day. Um, and that is exercise, it is meal timing, and it is light exposure. So if you go on to the night shift um, and you're coming home, you want to try to minimize as much light exposure as possible. So your body then starts to um, anticipate it's time to sleep. So wear, you know, blocking glasses in the morning on your way home, right? Try to do the, you know, wear sunglasses, everything you can do to minimize that light on the way home. And then once you get home, you want to try to go to bed as soon as humanly possible. That is when your pressure for sleep will be at its highest, so you want to go to bed um, and you want to try to get a consolidated, you know, seven hours if you can wake up. And if you're a morning person, exercise, that's another cue that your body will work off of. Okay. And then try to eat at regular times during your shift. Do not snack. That is the word you're confused the out of your system. <laughs> so do not snack. Um, and if you fast, fast as you normally would, right? If that's part of your protocol, do that as you normally would. Um, and then just really try to repeat that as often as possible. But that again, even though you're not awake during the day, um, stabilizing that sleep wake time, is really, really important. Again, regulate as much as you can in spite of not having that light exposure. One other thing I'll throw in there is that temperature plays into a lot of this stuff and it can be tricky. It's like cooler when you're awake and warmer when you're trying to sleep. I think room temperature when you're trying to sleep is just critical. I, I, I use a cooling uh, product for sleeping. It's called eight sleep, which is awesome. But anything that you can do to like lower the temperature of your, of your bed or your sleeping area, I think will also help get you that full seven, yeah, eight cold, hours. dark, quiet. Yeah. Amazing. Well, we are out of time guys, but thank you so much for coming. A huge round of applause for all of our panelists. This was awesome. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people. 